Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvelous. Four. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming back to the few with Boo and Sean. Wow, it's been uh, it's been a long COVID break uh, on this one, Shawnee. It has indeed, mate. A few months and uh, back into it, feeling a bit rusty, but now I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get straight back into it and back on the bike. Yes, they talk about COVID. How you've got this? Um, it does some sort of permanent neural damage to your long term memory. And I, and I just had it. I'm like, as the, as the intro stopped, I'm like, what's the podcast called again? I can see the sign, but I just I reckon there's this whole neural damage issue going. I'm going to blame it on on COVID anyway. Could be age, mate. Could be age, but you know, <laughs> that's true. That's true as well. Uh, really excited about our guest today. This is a podcast we have tried to string together for months and mm. months. The the diaries haven't really worked for anyone. They've locked themselves away over in WA, so probably didn't really want to talk too much to us anyway. Given that you know it was it was uh, may as well be Ukraine that far west uh, i think we're going to get a lot out of today's uh, today's podcast so let's welcome our guests today to veterans of the australian army to officers from the special air service the sasr mba grads qualifications up the yin yang traveled all over the world both living their true life purpose let's welcome uh, uh, ben and tim uh, onto the show today thanks guys for making time to talk to sean and myself welcome guys thanks sean thanks boo Tell us what it's been like, guys. Have you have you had to be resilient over in, in Western Australia? You've you've kind of cordoned yourself off from a lot of the world for a long time. What was it like living in the bubble? I think we're just starting to experience what you Easterners have, have understood this whole time. Um obviously the, the borders opening up, our caseload starting to spike and, and mercifully it's it's Omicron and not Delta, I suppose. But I'm just about to finish seven days of, of home isolation with a family member ill and, and so yeah, it's been a first real taste of it. But I think you're right. I think we have been pretty lucky in, in a lot of respects, but it's not been without its impact, certainly on the, the sort of economy side of things and, and for our little business, a few requirements to change. And so, you know, I guess when you look at these concepts of resilience as being able to maintain function through stressors, being able to bounce back, it's been not a bad sort of practical test. And I, I know that you guys, uh, I guess, have studied a bit about resilience, and I know that there's some things that you are teaching now around that. But when we talk about resilience, before we dive too far into it, how do you describe it? How do you say to someone, this is what resilience actually is, so that they can go, oh, shit, do I have that or don't I? Well, the first thing you do when you're writing a book on resilience is you try and work out what is the definition. And there was plenty of literature that said, it's the thing you've got to have before you enter a stress event. There were some things that said, no, 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 it's what you get if you come through, successfully navigate a stress event. And then there was those whose research identified that it was both of those things. And we like the option three, but the version, the definition that we really liked was brought to us by Dr. Lise Notabant, a psychologist and our research partner at the University of Western Australia. And she says that resilience is coming through adversity with a better than expected result. And, you know, so it's highly applicable to all people. However, 
you must demonstrate resilience in the face of adversity. If you've never really confronted adversity, uh, you know, you're an eastern suburbs person, you've grown up with a silver spoon in your mouth, then it's unlikely that you will have true resilience. And actually, a little bit of adversity could do a significant amount of damage. Conversely, if you've confronted adversity all of your life, if you're able to give context and contrast to those experiences and the sorts of little stressors that we realise every day, then you're likely to be more resilient. And our model recognises that resilience is multifactorial. There are many components to it, that it's modifiable, that we can do something to change our resilience. And importantly, it's dynamic. We can be more resilient today than we are next week. And how, how do you build that resilience muscle? Do you have to deliberately face adversity or there's other ways of doing it that are not quite as painful? I mean, the, the literature would suggest, and I, I certainly believe, that you actually do need to face stress. You can't build resilience in a bubble. So for all you helicopter parents out there who want to keep little Johnny... I was about padded, to say, helicopter pilots, mate. I was going to say, God, we've gone, we've gone there real early. We've gone there real early. <laughs> well, mate, I'm using small words because I'm aware I'm speaking to a fighter pilot and, and you are kept in a bubble. I mean, if, you, if you're not sleeping in a five-star hotel, it's, it's not a proper night's sleep. Those kind of things are probably not doing us any favours, that it's actually the controlled exposure to stress and the adaptation that we get from that in both a physical and a psychological sense that builds resilience. We, we get better at stress with controlled exposure. So fortunately, Sean, we, we probably do need a bit of stress to, to build and to demonstrate resilience. I think, Ben, we realise this through our crisis management practice where we run exercises, simulations and mocks for management teams all around the globe. And this stress inoculation or introducing stress into a boardroom, we saw wildly different results from management teams that were well attuned to, to dealing with it and those that weren't. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of can you build and inoculate against stress? Well, we think you can certainly before a stress event, but also the way that you frame your own mindset and your own approach coming through it and leaving that stress event behind is equally as important. Before there's resilience, I guess, guys, there's life, right? And and at the few, we talk about individuals that are living their own version of success and they're a leader within their field. At what point did you first realise that uh, a, you needed resilience, and then B, that you were resilient. What kind of happened? What was your life experience? I like the the sort of understanding of resilience not being as a binary sort of concept where you you have it or you don't. And so I, I certainly don't look at myself and say I am resilient. But that idea of relativity, Tim uh, mentioned before, I'm more resilient than I used to be because I'm aware of some of these things and a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the book. But for me, there was a real light bulb moment. When you, you talk about that term, people having success in the, well, their own version of success, understanding that, we talk about it in terms of happiness. And I think there's probably a correlation between those two things for the, the purpose of this discussion. But understanding that that kind of happiness or success, it isn't the Maserati in the driveway, that's almost a proxy for it. It's overcoming something. It's embracing that suck and dealing with that struggle. And so that for me, and, and we talk about sort of a better word for happiness being eudaimonia, sort of a Greek word meaning flourishing, which tends to talk about, over, uh, tends to imply overcoming some kind of challenge. That to me was a bit of a light bulb moment that, that it's not the outcome, it's actually the process. And I think as we look at that, in all the struggles we face, 
with that lens of, of sort of building resilience through struggle and achieving something by facing a challenge, that was a light bulb moment for me that this is this is the good stuff. The journey and the struggle is actually what it's all about. It's not the Maserati or the, the Riverside House at the end. Yeah, the hollow, hollow success. I guess a question that just came to mind from that is, do you see when you guys are researching this and you know, investigating more about resilience that somebody's ability to control their emotions or their emotional intelligence has a relationship or a correlation to their ability to be resilient as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote from a guy called Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. He wrote a, a fantastic book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about this idea between stimulus and response, there's a space. And essentially in that space lies our power to choose and, and essentially lies our destiny. That, I think, is a wonderful way of encapsulating this idea that being able to, A, recognize what your body's doing in terms of emotional reactions and particularly stress reactions, that can help demystify what you're feeling and can help put some perspective on the kind of emotions that you feel in stressful situations. But B, being able to insert that gap and instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction, which may be driven by our amygdala, the thing that tells us to fight or flight, uh, doesn't make us smarter. It makes us dumber. It um, It's good when we're facing a saber-toothed tiger, but not so good in relationships or at work or these sorts of things. Being aware of that, being able to control that to an extent, and being able to make a more rational choice, 100% is linked with better resilience outcomes. Things I want to touch on as well, guys, is is obviously you're a product of the military, you're a product of the, the pointiest end of, of the military as well. And Ben, when you talked about process and journey, I think if there's an organisation that has a monopoly on processes and journeys, it's the military, right? Everything has a journey to a rank, to a qualification, yeah. uh, a training program. It's incredibly, it's incredibly structured that way. So Tim, I'll throw this question to you. Of the experiences that you had in the military, where do you see the biggest gap between people that just didn't have that exposure to leadership and that exposure to adversity, but also the the baby steps? I think the military is quite good at that. Like it doesn't feed you too much too soon. It's learned over time that yeah, if if we overload you, you're not you're not going to be functional human being. What do you think are some of the lessons that we can draw out for that into day to day for for people that haven't got that experience? The system is excellent, isn't it, regardless of Army, Navy, Marine or Air Force. I think it commissions people really well, but to steal a line from Dr Richard Magnangard, a good friend of ours and psychiatrist, we decommission ships better than we decommission people. We put a lot of emphasis, when we consider all tenets of resilience, we put a lot of emphasis into being physically fit. We do put a little bit of emphasis through the vector of exercise into mindset, you know, into making sure that people are determined. And a lot of that is about supporting your team as a leader and being the best version of you that you possibly can so you can serve your team. But one of the things that, you know, now we've been through the research we think could be done a lot better is work on the mind layer. I mean, if the system was perfect, Boo, we wouldn't have any problems. We wouldn't have a veteran suicide, Royal Commission on Veteran Suicide. We wouldn't have people that were invalided out physically or psychologically. And so there are definitely better things that can be done inside the military. I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who asked a very similar question. And I think actually when we consider things that potentially 15 years ago might have been woo-woo, like meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, that we know actually assists in building resilience or diminishing vulnerability, military leaders are thawing out on that. I think if 
you would have walked into Ben or my troop officers when we were troop commanders in the SAS and said, all of your patrol members should be meditating before a mission and after a mission, they should be practicing gratitude. You'd be laughed out of the troop office. But I think now we're starting to get metrics that indicates that the system isn't wonderful. Not to say it's broken because there are things that are done very well, but there are definitely deficits. And if we could point a finger to one layer of the resilient shield, it'd be mind and not so much mindset, but meditation and mindfulness practices to make sure that we can flush the nonsense from our head. So you've had absolutely cognitive overload through this particular mission. How do you decompress it? Because the one thing we know is that this brain between our ears is 200,000 years old and we are taking on more information at a load of about 5% year on year, but we don't have any purge valves. So you're quite limited in what you can do. A key purge valve is the use of meditation and mindfulness techniques just to allow a release of all the superfluous nonsense that accumulates in your brain. And that is probably just one little aspect that we think is absolutely transferable that leaders should embrace, that everyone, regardless of the nature of service, in fact, regardless of industry or sector, should apply in their own lives. It's it's an often neglected part of resilience. Tim, I, I, I love that reference at the end there. A lot of our listeners are also in small business and I focus on working with small business owners and a big part of that is that mindfulness. It's about making sure that we're not too much in our heads. We're actually in our body as well. We're actually being aware of our state. As you said before, Ben, the whole, you could have, uh, what is it, uh, um, uh, the trigger react or trigger pause respond. And and that's a choice we can start to consciously make. And I think that we've brought a lot of that into, as we say, we, we grow business owners through the vehicle of business we're not actually growing businesses, we're growing the people. And that has to start with their emotional IQ about their ability to be mindful, to be present, because running a small business, particularly with challenges that have happened with things like COVID and, you know, and, and impacts of being shut down or, or not having revenue, or you, as you said earlier, you know, big hits of revenue like we've had as well in, in our business, that creates a heck of a lot of stress for people. And that release valve, and I've seen it in my own life as well, is a lot more mindfulness, a lot more being in the body and, you know, things like meditation and stuff which 10 years ago, as you said, if you said that to your mates at a pub, they'd be like, what's wrong with you, buddy? Um, have another beer, you know. But it's become such a prominent and I suppose now normal element that people, I feel, can get such a, a strong benefit from. I agree. And certainly for us, coming from kind of the biggest institute or one of the biggest institutions in Australia in the military to now being in a small business and running it ourselves, absolutely there's stressors that we never would have expected or encountered in the, the sheltered workshop of defence. But there's also all these amazing little opportunities to have these things you can be grateful for. I mean, the ability, a silly example, to do a little office refit and get something that, that everyone in the office really likes to come into work to and they've got say in it and, and that sort of thing. The ability on a, a Friday afternoon with not much work on to, to go for a team lunch there's a lot of this kind of dynamism and autonomy that you get in a, a small business. And if you're, well, I find for me anyway, if I'm aware of that and I'm present and I'm realizing what a, a gift this is, then that is a, a wonderful thing for, for my mind layer, for my well-being, for my resilience. And it's something that I think, unless you're attuned to it, it can be easy to miss. 
you miss those opportunities along the way and it can be a, a vicious circle in that respect. You just get spun up and spun up. The other way, if, you, if you're noticing and taking advantage of these things, can be this wonderful virtuous circle because you see those opportunities more frequently and you, you start to enjoy your life a bit more. And I'd say that probably has an impact on your team too, doesn't it? If you've got a team that has this this ability to bond, and we ran an event a few weeks ago in Cairns, and the, on the day after the event, uh, before everyone got on the planes, we went and had a, a team breakfast for for about ninety minutes or so. We talked about our experiences and and what we you know what we really got from that event and and the experience. We do it that as much as we can. We connect as a team. What I've seen though is when some sort of adversity hit. The team came together and the resilience of the team as a group was much, much higher than if people are just there doing a job, get in, here's your freaking checklist of what you do every day and get to it because that level of resilience seems to me to be very low in those instances. Yeah, I mean the the currency or the dividend between a leader and the followers is trust. The one thing we know about putting these teams into simulated stress events is that that dividend of trust is built quicker through the course of a crisis, an emergency or an incident. And you can still simulate it. It doesn't have to be a real event. So there's great opportunity in making sure that teams are prepared, that that dividend is getting richer and, you know, there's real colour in it so that if when the time comes, you're able to, to execute with a bit more excellence than you had before. I was going to pick up also on something that Ben was talking about on the the meditation specifically. I mean, meditation or mindfulness techniques does not have to be a formal meditation course. Mindfulness or things that are meditative is just removing the four to seven things that we are constantly thinking about down to one. So it could be playing a musical instrument or downhill mountain biking or for young kids, colouring in or singing karaoke. If you're doing any of those things, it's quite difficult to be worried about your American Express bill or your mortgage or illness in the family. And so there are vectors or even Trojan horses that we can incorporate to absolutely start to bring our attention down to the one thing or the none thing to create that purge. And coming back to the topic of leaders, Boo, leaders need to create an environment where it's psychologically safe to do that to practice gratitude, to transfer it inside a team environment where there's space for people to go and decompress through a mindfulness activity or doing some meditation. I think that's going to become incredibly important and nearly in this environment, the COVID environment and decentralised workforces, embracing work from anywhere, where leaders are a bit more remote from their staff, our need as leaders to connect deeply into those staff that aren't inside the office every day of the week is becoming more important. But conversely, what staff are doing for themselves is becoming um, incredibly important as well. It's an interesting conversation, I think, when you have with resilience. And I had a personal experience with excessive resilience, I think. Like I left the Air Force, I had a I was medically discharged, hopped on a plane, landed in Kabul, and I'd never really been on the ground in, in that sort of environment before. So for me, starting a business there and then you know being used to pottering around in the Hyundai, trying to keep a low profile and everyone looking in the window and not being very happy to see you, you know, over a period of two years of that environment and commuting between there and home, I became too resilient as it were. You know, I think there's a gray area there, I think. I think we can celebrate resilience, but at the same time, if we become too resilient, it's like we lose 
a piece of ourselves as well. Like you can become so tough mm. and so impenetrable. And I was talking, I was talking to a coaching client this morning, and he was talking about how he's very loyal and dutiful, and he runs an enormous multi-million dollar business, and he's a stand-up leader. He's resilient, but he just says, "I just wonder what is the point." Hmm. See, this is what. I think is a really important thing from, and what we think is, is quite unique and powerful about the model we produce. I'd argue by our definition, neither yourself nor that business leader were actually resilient because Tim mentioned before, we, we see resilience as a multifactorial thing. And so it's easy to think of things like the mindset and even the physical characteristics. And there's certainly components, but there's also massive elements of social connectivity that are really important for, for our global resilience. And so it's not just about being tough and, and sort of batting off the world as it, as it comes to you. It's about having this connectedness where you can actually be vulnerable. You know, the idea of being vulnerable paradoxically is actually really important to resilience, to have those human relationships where you can have that connection, you can let your guard down, you know, you don't have to be on it at all times. And so I'd argue the examples you've said before probably are good examples of domain-specific resilience, so showing resilience against operating in a war zone or, or the thrust and parry of a, of a really high-pressure business environment. But over the long term, they're probably actually showing some deficits in areas of our resilience shield, and in particular things like the social connections and things like some of that mindfulness and the ability to just be at peace and, and to be calm. So it's it's probably a semantic term, you know, difference in, in terms of definitions of resilience. But yeah, we, we think it is multifactorial and that, that it does require good human connections and a bit of downtime where you can, can reflect on your thoughts and be vulnerable. That's interesting because, you know, I've, I always had a philosophy because, again, in the Air Force, you had guys you'd fly with that were really, really good pilots, but they were dickheads and assholes to be around. And then there were ones that were great and they were excellent. And it instilled in me this philosophy of I always wanted to try and be uh, good and successful, but be a decent human because I felt like if you're an asshole and you're good, it's actually pretty easy to do. So when we look at that, right, and the environments you guys would have been forged in before you, I don't think when we went through military, we, we were looking at expanding minds too much in terms of the environment that we operated in. It was more that domain-specific resilience. But somewhere in your journeys, guys, there was some something must have happened where, for me, it was divorce and life just got hard and, and went to, made the, I just said, look, I'm going to, Spend one year, I'm going to go to a psychologist every fortnight and just unpack everything, just go take advantage of this moment. I'm going to lean into it. I've got no idea where it's going to go, and it was the best thing that ever happened, right? But when did you start to say, hey, resilience is more than being tough? Yeah. What happened or what was it about life yeah. that got you to that conclusion? I mean, maybe I, I start, and I know Tim's got perspectives on this, but that was the catalyst for writing the book. You know, we had seen both in the moment in in specific incidents in Afghanistan, but also in the aftermath of those, these so-called tough people, and we, we all thought we were pretty tough, were having these really different reactions to, to the kind of stressors. And that was, for me, the catalytic moment where we thought it's got to be about more than just being able to walk with a heavy pack on your back or, or um, having that, that sort of strong mindset. And that was really brought home with my brother and the, the third co-author, Dr. Dan Pronk, and some of the post-traumatic stress issues he faced and it, it really personalized it for me so for us it, or for me anyway it was seeing those things um, and really questioning well what were those constituent elements of resilience and how can we get better at them 
And I'm ashamed to say that my on-ramp into it was complete ignorance, I thought, because we'd undertaken the same training, bio-value, we were ostensibly looked identical, we had the same equipment, we followed the same doctrine, that we should all just respond the same. And I think, again, converting this into our corporate work with management teams in simulated crisis management environments, we just saw this ostensibly that ostensibly wasn't the case. And the conversion was in the workshops that we started running for resilience. Um, you know, spearheaded by Dan and Ben, we started to essentially run the methodology before we started writing the book. And it resonated. It was third party validated. People were coming up and saying, wow, that's incredible. We've been doing moving meditation on the mezzanine level on Mondays, but you've now just given me a whole new perspective on the other things that I could be doing in my life to diminish my vulnerability or be more resilient. And so we took a lot of heart from that. And then when we burrowed into the literature, we saw the rationale. I mean, you'll remember any number of sporting events, but one for me that stood out was Glenn Maxwell winning a one-day international for Australia a couple of years ago. And the next day is on mental health leave. It's nearly irrational that this guy, physically at the peak of his performance, professionally has done an incredible job through that game, but the next day he's on mental health leave. And it wasn't until we started to peel through all of the research that we absolutely got it. And importantly for us, it writing the book, the sort of part two, converting the workshops into the book, we didn't want to say once upon a time, you know, we served in the SAS regiment, these are the things we did and you should do them too. Because there's plenty of good examples where guys and girls that have served in the unit have had their struggles. And so we took the model, which recognises the importance of an innate layer, mind, body, social and professional layers of a resilient shield. And we threw it to Dr. Lee Snodabart at UWA and we said, break it. We really want you to challenge this look at it critically and work out whether it's credible or not. And we're delighted to say that she came back and said, wow, yeah, it's it's validated. The, the model works wonderfully well. And then sitting alongside that, maybe Ben will talk to the survey, was our ability for people to assess how resilient they are, to create a benchmark. That also has been a crucial part of our research work that enables us to cut demographics in different ways to work out uh, by gender, by geography, by age, by type of resilience, by the tenet of resilience, what does our uh, society look like? Hey, Tim, you mentioned, you've mentioned the Resilience Shield a few times. Can you just really clearly describe what that's made up of? Like what, what makes up this Resilience Shield that you guys have, have effectively um, come up with to, and has st- clearly stress tested and it's, it's something that, uh, that's adding and going to be adding value to a lot of people? Yeah, so the innate layer is part nature, part nurture. It recognises that in our upbringing, we all have some level of resilience. The mind layer, the first truly modifiable layer, recognises the importance of mindset, the view you take on things and on life, your ability to be determined, to be gritty, but also mindfulness and meditation to get rid of the 34 gigabytes of information we're consuming a day into our brains. The body layer, not startlingly sleep, diet and exercise, with sleep the absolute superpower out of those healthy trinity. And 
everyone will nod their head in agreement when you talk about sleep, diet and exercise, but they're actually the first three things to go when we encounter a stress event. A social layer, which recognises the importance of our social support networks, the people that are there for us and those that we're there with, and how we interact. How do we get the best quality of interaction out of those friends, family, and significant others? The professional layer, an ability to look at your own professional life, regardless of whether you're a stay-at-home parent or an exec on the high street, diagnose your competence, because if you're not good at your job, it's likely to bring more stress into your life and then work an action plan for how you get better. And then our bonus layer is the adaptation layer, which recognises that a little bit like Boo in Kabul, if you're broadly resilient across all of the other layers of your resilient shield, adaptation recognises your ability to do things that you never thought you'd be able to do to address the unknown and unknowable. Ben likes to use the example confront the zombie apocalypse with all of those skills and knowledge and experience that you've got and get a fantastic result. I think that's sort of a philosophy. It's not till you climb without a rope, you really know how well and how far you can climb. And And I think we're trained more and more now in a cotton wool world to not do that, to be very careful before we leap. And I think it's that movie Wally where everyone just wanders around on floating chairs and they all weigh about 200 pounds, right? It's like, bring me a, bring me a cocktail. Uh, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a worry there. My, I've got young kids who are coming through 12 now and I've just was introduced to this book called iGen where it talks about the kids that are turning 10 and 12 now. A lot of them have never read a book. They've never engaged with content in any other format other than digital. And as they move into puberty and into, into environments where the social construct is more important and, and more foisted upon them, all of a sudden it's like there's this disconnect between the ability to take anything on the chin that isn't the perfect world or what you've been reading or watching in a movie and all of a sudden someone's mean to you and in real life, not through a, you know, a troll or, or they kind of know that the synthetic world is if someone says something nasty to you on social media, it doesn't mean anything. Everyone's kind of not kind of, they're getting there now. But to have it in real life, it's just like, oh, oh my oh my gosh. Do you have any insights into where resilience is going? As the first world starts to just become more woke and, and gentle, how does that affect resilience? Yeah, I reckon that's an interesting question and something we talk about a fair bit. I think it is easy for every generation to look at the next one and and say they're not resilient, they're not like we were back in the day. And I certainly remember very distinctly seeing one of the last selection courses that I worked on as an instructor, SAS selection courses, which is it's a pretty clearly a pretty brutal course. In fact, it's almost as tough as Ant Middleton makes it out to be on Channel 7 each night. But regardless, it's, it's pretty gruelling. It's designed to be. And I remember at the start of this, the candidates have rocked in and they're all whatever gen they are, millennials, I guess. And, you know, they were on their phones and they were doing their hair and they were taking selfies and tweeting and posting. And and I, I remember smiling and just thinking, this course is going to eat you alive, young, young ones. But about 48 hours in, stripped back the veneer and they were the same tough sort of hardcore Australian soldiers that that course has always attracted and, and sort of put through. So I'm bullish. I, I don't think that we've got this sort of generational difference, but two caveats to that. One is that that point about needing stress to build resilience. I do think that by virtue of us living in such an amazing, blessed, protected 
environment. We are robbing some of that. And I think your point, Boo, is a really good one that I think the more time we spend in a curated and confected online world and the, the less time we spend from the, the metaphorical and literal dirt and snails, then the, the, the kind of less we're, we're building resilience in those critical early years. And the second thing which I'm really concerned about is our tendency to flee to victimhood so quickly. And I think we see that in a lot of different quarters that the second an adversity comes up, there can be a tendency to, to say, oh, I'm the victim here and it's not fair. And like you say, some of those, those kind of wokeisms, it's easy to, to run to those. In some cases, 100% they're justified and we're, we're getting some really good attention on some, some age-old biases and that sort of stuff. But we still want to be able to deal with this unpredictable and, and vexing world. And I think the idea of resilience for us is as much about empowering people to recognise that you can climb without the rope, you can try these things, that you can fall and it, it won't kill you and, in fact, will, will ultimately um, help you develop if you process it the right way. So I think there is an element of that that we're at risk of losing because we live in such a, a nice, safe, clean, cushioned society. So think about when you grew up, right? You know, you fell off your bike, you scraped your knees, you're always, the house was full of band-aids and there was always something that Dental. you had. Yeah, exactly. All the, the special cream, you know, the magic cream that you put that on. It was like, <laughs> but but I reckon there's a, a whole bunch of Gen Y and millennials in places like Kiev and Mariupol at the moment who are really demonstrating that same sort of keep calm and carry on, that, that kind of stoic attitude that we saw come out in the Blitz and that I think... You know, I think it's intrinsic to human nature, and I think we just need to rediscover it. And we're so lucky that we don't have external forces thrusting it onto us like they do in other parts of the world, that potentially we need to find it a bit ourselves and, and like you say, scrape a few knees. How could parents, you know, with, that have to kids similar ages, 13 and 10, how could uh, those of us listening to this podcast with uh, with kids what sort of things would you suggest would help to give them some more opportunity to be a bit more resilient and experience a few of those controlled stresses to help them in their later life? That's probably the question we've been getting the most of. And yeah, we ran a workshop on Friday night, specifically concluding on the things you can do by age bracket. Probably in the macro sense, there's a really important aspect that parents need to understand. And that's this dynamic scale called locus of control. Julian Rotter's model, which recognises that we're not at any one point on that scale. We move from either having an external locus of control, where it is always someone else's fault. I didn't get the job because my boss doesn't like me. I didn't go well in the test because they didn't teach us that in class, to having an internal locus of control where, sure, I didn't get the promotion, but what can I learn from that to make me more competitive the next time around? And nudging your kids towards that internal locus of control is really important. I've got three kids. My first two absolutely are up towards that end of the scale, the internal locus of control. And then I've got one. It's always someone else's fault. You know, the teacher didn't teach it or that person had it out for me. It's not fair, Dad. They don't have great contrast or perspective on the problem. And the way I'm doing it is asking her, okay, sure, you didn't pass the test and you say that your teacher didn't teach you, but what can you learn from the experience? And then as they repeat out the lessons learned, I'm hoping it's coding in their brain what they need to do next time. Oh, we need to go deeper into the textbooks, Dad. I need to ask some more questions before the test, Dad. And just hopefully I'm going to increment that up. And I, and I say that, you know, we, we wrote this in 100,000 
word book. We kind of know it, but it doesn't automatically mean that it gets practiced in your in your household. But there's certainly things by age bracket that parents can do, and we can perhaps bounce through a few of those as well. But locus of control, where does your kid sit on that locus of control and how do we push them down to that internal locus of control? Because the consequences are quite profound. Those people that have an external locus of control where it is always someone else's fault are more likely to be physically unwell, a cigarette smoker and have depression and anxiety. And the more successful people in life, and there was a study on Fortune 500 companies and their leaders typically are up at that internal locus of control. So there's a direct correlation into the quality of life, but also our success in life. It's interesting coming from this conversation, Sean works in businesses to assure success and grow them with a success mindset. I work in performance and deep performance and how do you get more from less? And you guys are very much in the resilience space, but I would be, it would be really hard to pick apart a different element of this conversation that that resilience and the attributes you show there are very similar to high performers and very similar to successful business people. I mean, mindfulness, mindset, uh, control what you can control and adapt to what you can't. All of these scenarios are, are really interesting, but I certainly find probably spending seven years now in corporate world or in performance in those areas, that that ability to debrief is so easy conceptually, but incredibly hard to practice. And Ray Dalio talks about the radical transparency. He, in principles of the book, but also in his business, he talks about you know being radically truthful and radically transparent can radically transform your life. However, you've got to learn how to do it and practice it because that ability for human beings to do that, I don't think is innate. That ability to deconstruct the situation and look at it and say, what did I learn from that? I know in this room, it's pretty much conditioned and routine behavior and habit, but I've always amazed at how difficult it is for a room full of people to have that conversation. Absolutely. I'm going to add to that what you're saying there, Bill. I mean, and Tim, what you said before about that locus of control. For me, it's there's the victim mindset. And I haven't seen one person I've worked with that has the victim mindset that's created success. Right? Now, I look at my own journey. And from when I was 17, I had clinical depression for about 17 years. And my locus of control was external at that point. It wasn't until I actually took it back and I took control of that internally and said, well, no one's going to save me. No one's going to you know, give me a handout or whatever. I've got to do this myself. And as soon as I shifted that to being, I am the one that's creating this and so therefore I can change it, that's when stuff started to move. So it is, it applies across yeah, all aspects of life. Absolutely. My question around that conversation, Tim, that you just talked about is, what are some ways that individuals or teams, and it's not, it doesn't even have to be at work, it could just be a team, it could be your family, but what are some of the barriers to having that conversation and what can we do to help people overcome them? Yeah, back to that learning organisation, how do we, either in the family or amongst our friends or in our business, how do we become a learning organisation? I think the most succinct thing that was ever explained to us was by Wayne Jones, great mate of Ben's also in the SAS regiments, now the CEO of iFly, the indoor skydiving. And Wayne's probably seen the worst that world could, uh, the world could serve up, pretty much served on every modern battlefield. He was at the Cabello Massacre where their hands were tied as hundreds of militia swept through an internally displaced persons camp and, and massacred people. And Wayne talks about the importance of debriefing to, quote, close the loop. And he uses the analogy of the car crash. Like if it was only you there standing looking at the car crash, you might not remember or recall 
what happened accurately, but certainly you haven't seen things from every angle. And uh, we asked him the question specific to the Cabello massacre, and he said that the important thing was standing there with a cup of tea when things had quietened down and being able to have that dialogue. You know, why were we so powerless? Should we have done something else? Could we have done something else? And he's really embraced that through his professional career through the SAS regiment and into iFly on just making sure that the loop can be closed. Psychologically, that's incredibly valuable. It overcomes that maladaptive rumination. Oh, maybe I should have fired my machine gun at them. But if I did that, how would that happen? And so, yeah, incredibly important. We kind of break the things down into two. The first one is debriefing, like really informal, frequent, and it should be part of ritual and routine. And the second is that after-action review, more formal, ideally using an independent facilitator specific to an event or a project or a task of significance. But both of those things ultimately have the same purpose. It's about closing the information loop. What are the things that went really well that we should celebrate and sustain? What are the things that didn't go so well that we should document and broadcast widely? And there's a wonderful example, the 3M post-it note. The 3M post-it note was a happy accident. A scientist trying to make a really strong adhesive failed, documented it, sent it across to his colleagues that I was trying to make this strong adhesive and I actually made a really weak adhesive. A couple of years later, one of those colleagues standing in church, his bookmark kept falling out of the Bible and he thought, geez, wouldn't it be great if I had a note with a really weak adhesive? Enter the 3M post-it note. So there's, there's wonderful reasons and examples why we need to embrace being a learning organisation. We've just run a diagnostic over a team split between... Uh, in fact, m- multiple continents, but principally North America and Australia, they identify as close as you possibly can to high performance. And one of the things that binds them is tempo. Tempo is the enemy of the learning organization. They are never able to apply that operational pause to be able to capture information and disseminate it, the things done well, the things done badly, and the things in between. And if they're not able to do it, they're probably not setting themselves up well for future success. They're not able to capture those little moments and make sure that they're coded into the DNA of their whole workforce so they don't repeat mistakes. Repeating mistakes is not only inefficient, but it's ineffective. So even the businesses that are incredibly high-performing, high-performance, often don't do this so well because they can't carve out the time And that needs leadership in order to reflect either in short periods or in deeper periods to learn the lessons of the thing that they've just been through. Tim, I I can attest to that in seeing, I'm the the odd one out here, obviously the only one not uh, having been in the defence force of any kind, but being in business and seeing and learning from Boo a number of years ago, the concept of the debrief and debriefing something to, as you said, now I haven't heard it put in that language, it's closing the information loop. And we do that now and have done for many years in, in my different businesses. And I can actually see how valuable that is because we also teach that to our members. It allows us to be very dynamic, very nimble, look at things that aren't working, address them quickly, 
doesn't require a lot of time. It's not like people have got to take a day or two out every week or something to, to focus on this stuff. It can be very short, sharp. We'll jump on a quick Zoom, three of us on the team. Hey, look, this worked really well, but this didn't. How do we fix this for next time to stop that from happening again? Okay, let's, uh, let's take this action. Great. Implement the action, move forward. And so that cycle of of, as we say, one of our core values is we have a culture of continuous improvement. It's about always making something a little bit better. What can we make, you know, what's something we can make one, two, three percent better today? We always talk to close the loop with the person that's related to that element of the business. And, and it's very, very powerful. And I can say that I've seen a huge change in my own business and many of our clients' businesses by using that same same philosophy. But Ben, I've got a, got a question for you. Obviously, with your studies around this, your, your life experience and everything, I'll, I'll ask probably ask you to this as well, Tim, afterwards. But if there's something that you could take away from your lessons now and go back and, and teach a younger version of yourself about being resilient and thriving in your life going forward, what would you go back and teach to yourself? It would be that mindfulness and, and meditation bit. I think that ability to, to clear the negative and distracting thoughts, Tim referred to it as flushing the nonsense, I think I was generally pretty driven and, and generally pretty open to to sort of trying some new things. And I think from a mindset perspective, I generally had a decent degree of resilience in, in terms of being able to keep going. But it wasn't until very recently that I understood that ability to, to get that purge valve, to be able to clear your mind and to focus on some things. And I would love to go back in time and, and introduce a, a younger Ben Pronk to meditation I do wonder, however, you know, that old parable when the, the student is ready, the teacher appears, I, I wonder how receptive I would have been to it. And I think this is something we're trying to combat, that there is probably a bit of stigma in a lot of quarters of Australian society, and I'd offer probably more so amongst males, against these ideas. And so, you know, the the writer that I'd say is that I'd go back and, and I wouldn't be preaching it as kind of meditation in the, the sort of hippie incense flowing robe sense. I'd, I'd be preaching it as strength training for your brain, which is exactly what I've come to think of it as. It's it's like doing reps in the gym for your cognitive muscle. And I think that kind of vehicle would have, would have been a bit stickier for a, a younger version of myself. And how about yourself, Tim? What would you go back and, and teach yourself? If you think I'm scatterbrained now, you should have seen me before I meditated. I'm ritualistic with my meditation. I attended a course. I practice it daily. I'd do it before I went to the gym and instead of going to the gym. And so I won't repeat that because it's it's exactly the same experience that Ben's got. The other thing I'd say is in this world where social media is really important, where we've got all these followers and we're constantly seeking likes, why is it that 20% of Americans are diagnosed as being lonely, that importance of social support systems. And if I can tell a little story about my footy club, I went back to playing footy a few years ago, 150 people at Wembley Vets Footy Club down the road, this AFL Masters Club. And I've realised in the last five years that it's got nothing to do with the football. It's got nothing to do with the game. It's just got everything to do with those 150 people and smaller components inside the 150 being there for each other. And, yeah, it's been incredible to watch as principally guys go through periods in their life where they've got challenges, physical and psychological, and the way that that footy club rallies around them. And, you know, yeah, sure, every second weekend they go and chase a ball around the oval, but it's certainly not the most important part of being a member in the club. And that transferability 
I think is doesn't matter whether you're in the CrossFit gym or you're volunteering, where is the shared and common purpose with people that you care for and they care for you? Because my fear is that with our obsession with social media, we're focusing time in these virtual worlds and not really enough time in the real world where ultimately it's going to matter. And that's getting right. worse. I mean, you look at the metaverse now and Second Life and the, like people truly are creating a second identity and second version of themselves. I mean, it's pretty – I'm in a tech incubator building a, an AI SaaS platform that connects debriefing to objectives. And in that group, I'm like the old dude by a mile, right? And in there, it's just like the world is going twice as fast in, in what's going on there, right? It's – all the kids are, I call them kids, they're like in their 20s, but they're very sweet. They're incredibly kind. But to have their attention in a conversation is like really hard to, to get that. I mean, I'm probably the old boring dude who keeps talking garbage. But there's so many unique, I mean, this is a totally different tangent now, but I think for our brains at our age and to truly comprehend how connected these kids are now and how the neural pathways that are being forged that, that for us, social media is a pain, but for them, they've got like a strong muscle to, to handle that content capture and, and distribution, not, not to be healthy. So I think it's going to be, as would say 200,000-year-old brain, you know, going through this incredible rapid evolution. It's going to keep you guys busy for a long time, I think. I think we're going to see some very interesting results in our society when it comes to resilience the next generation or so. Well, hopefully make us redundant. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful if... We didn't need doctors and therapists and counsellors and psychologists because we're just able to better look after ourselves and our friends. I mean, I think to your point, it's not likely. But, yeah, we, we pray for a world where our communities are a little, little bit more resilient, getting better results for our kids and our grandparents and us in between. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's awesome. Awesome, guys. Thanks much, so much for coming onto the show. And I'm not much of a reader, having ADHD, but I have been able to chapter skip through Resilience Shield and there's so much in it that it's beyond resilience. I mean, I really do think it's a, a read that, delivers not just resilience it does give you a framework for success as well i think if you if you get into it and you really dissect it and it's a good book because you can go as deep as you want but you can also get some skim and some gems through it as well you know you've got got some index pages and some pictures and stuff uh so uh, yeah for fighter, for fighter pilots it works quite well. well mate it was it was written by two infantrymen so yeah. <laughs> it's not too high no but the choice is yours to go deep or to take some real great gold nuggets and pearls from there so thanks for sharing that uh, some of those insights and make sure you google resilient shield it pops up on right at the top of google so they're great marketing there fellas um, <laughs> we really appreciate having you on the show yeah thanks for having me come on the show guys appreciate it no, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Bill.
Cheers, Sean. This has been the View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.